You're listening to an Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 RFM with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we spoke with Ben Eltham about federal politics, Amber Jamison about Trump's America. Then we had a chat with Mark Wakeham, CEO of Environment Victoria, about the closure of the Hazelwood power plant and the implications that it has for Victoria in terms of the environment, energy security, as well as the health effects. Then, finally, we chatted with Eloise Ross, who is a co-programmer at the Melbourne Cinematheque and discussed the retrospective currently on at ACME on filmmaker and director Dorothy Arzner. I hope you enjoy. And you're listening to 3RRR, and this is Uncommon Sense with Amy. And I've got a special guest in the studio. He's a regular but special, uh, and it's Ben Eltham. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Yeah, morning, Amy. How are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Yep. We've we've all recognised that the traffic is not ideal this morning. Oh, it's nuts. Nuts yeah. out there. Yeah, there's a little man with a stop sign on the bridge on Blythe Street and um, not going anywhere, basically. <laughs> for about 20 minutes there. So commiserations to all the commuters out there trying to get to where they need to go. Um, so, Ben, federal politics and... We've got a lot happening. In particular, we've got some movement on a couple of issues. One uh, is the childcare reforms, which were tied to something called an omnibus bill, which had a lot of savings or cuts, whatever you'd like to term it, um, attached to these childcare reforms. And the government have essentially backflipped or taken them out of this savings package. First of all, why would you put them together if you know that this isn't going to be popular? Um, you know, how effective a strategy was it in the first place and what have we got left now? Yes, well, the government has passed a childcare package. This is more money for childcare subsidies uh, and it's done that with the assistance of the Senate crossbench, uh, people like Nick Xenophon, and uh, the one, one Nation. So they've got that one through. Um, now, originally they had packaged that up with a series of uh, saves, if you like, so spending cuts, basically, uh, particularly to family tax benefit and payments to families. Which is why Labor wasn't for Labor it, was right? Labor was opposed. Yeah. Labor's also opposed to the substance of the childcare bill because Labor doesn't consider them reforms. Labor considers them to be um, quite retrograde, if you like, and regressive in their effect. And actually, there are some pretty worrying aspects of this childcare bill, which is passed, by the way, so that's going to happen. It's now the law of the land. Um, in particular, the, the childcare package imposes very strict activity tests on parents uh, in order to get the childcare subsidy. Um, so um, those of you who have kids in childcare will know that um, the, uh, it's quite expensive, right? So, um, and difficult to get in Difficult the first to get place. into, um, quite expensive, often run by private providers, um, and the government does give you a subsidy. So typically half of your childcare bill up to a certain amount each year is paid for by the government. Now, that what they've done is made the activity test much more stringent and it will apply to both parents. So now we'll have to have both parents in pretty much full-time work for you to be able to get childcare subsidy. So Labor and a lot of social welfare groups are worried that this really means that um, uh, people who are out of work or poorer Australians in general uh, maybe who are just working part-time, won't be able to access the subsidy. So that's a real concern. It's a huge concern because shouldn't we actually, Ben, be encouraging people to 
takes some time to be a hands-on parent, men and women. Isn't that something to be encouraged if they financially can? Sure. I mean, everyone wants to be an engaged parent, but if you look at all the stats and the data, early childhood education is crucial, particularly in the early years of a child's life. So if you can get your kid into some kind of regular early childhood education, such as the sort that good childcare providers do give you, um, then that's going to be hugely beneficial for the child mm. and, and for the family, obviously. I know, though, of some modern arrangements now where the men uh, go and take four days, so they work four days and then the, the mother or woman works four days and then they manage to actually only have them in childcare for three, which means they kind of get more of a hands-on um, you know, time, but they're also being more flexible. That seems to be where more and more couples are moving. But also, if you look at the the um, people who are underemployed or casual workers who can't get full-time employment, they're often women. So that means, and, you know, they're lower paid. Does that mean that those workers are really disadvantaged with this package? Yeah, it does. And people are warning about it, that it could be potentially really bad. So um, I think that's one of those ones where we're going to have to watch this mm. space and maybe talk to some childcare experts and do a bit of research on it. But Well, we did see just a, only about a week and a half ago, the OECD put out a report talking about women's workforce participation and how uh, Australia could actually improve its workforce participation if mothers uh, had more access to childcare. So I think it, it almost sounds like we're we're taking a step back. I think we are taking a step back and it, it is a concern and let's face it you know the Australian workplace is not very flexible for working parents um, of either gender and it's particularly hard I think for for parents of young children uh, there's very little flexibility uh, even just the fact that most even long day care centres are only open till six so they close at six so for parents who do shift work for parents who work late at nights it's completely inappropriate so there's plenty of areas where we need major major reforms and unfortunately i think this package is not it it isn't and it's one of the few things that the turnbull government have actually passed and done that they could potentially put their hat on and say yes uh, yeah, that's right. That. So they did get it through. And of course, one of the ways they got it through was to bundle it up with some cuts. So even though there was not the huge number of cuts that were in the omnibus bill, there were still some offsetting cuts to pay for this package. And they actually represent a couple of billion dollars in cuts and freezes to family payments. And again, these will hit lower income families the hardest. Okay, so we know that they're not necessarily looking after the most disadvantaged in Australia, but they're looking to still uh, look after the most advantaged, that being large companies. Because we did hear earlier, I think it was last week, that there were some murmurings that potentially uh, the government would not go forward with the full company tax cut for large companies. And there was still some to and fro on the definition of what a, a corporate or a large company is. But then we saw Malcolm Turnbull come out on the weekend and put water on that uh, particular idea and say, no, no, we're still proceeding. Was that just bad politics? Does, why doesn't he, uh, t you know, renege and actually give himself some spending money for his budget? Uh, good question, Amy. Um, all we know is that the government is full speed ahead with the $50 billion of company tax cuts. 
Uh, to be fair, it was their election policy and pretty much their only election policy. So um, you'd expect them to, to move ahead with that now that they were narrowly re-elected. Um, there was talk that the government would abandon the, the company tax cut for the biggest corporations and try and get a deal for small business because Labor and Xenophon and the Greens would probably vote for a small business tax cut. Uh, but not for the big businesses. Uh, but something happened on the weekend, whatever it was. Um, we know that Malcolm Temple went and had a nice swanky dinner with the Business Council of Australia over the weekend. And lo and behold, after that meeting, uh, he's full steam ahead on the big big business company tax cuts as well. So uh, they are, of course, $50 billion over about a 10-year period. Um, that, that will cost the, the budget that much. Um, the government says that they will create economic growth, but most economists say that it, it basically won't be noticeable. You won't it was really negligible. notice it. negligible. Yeah. It's like 1%. It's something like 0.1%. Yeah, tiny. Yeah. yeah. And also it is politically unpalatable in the high end, when you're looking at those large corporates, I don't think many people would say, yep, absolutely. But lots of people would go, okay, small to medium business, that makes sense because, you know, they're starting at a different point and actually small businesses really power our economy. Well, it's one of those kind of great furfies in the debate really, isn't it? I mean, in the small businesses aren't typically incorporated anyway. So most small businesses uh, simply sole trader people with an ABN, you know, like your tradie, your plumber or your electrician that's a small business, they typically aren't a company anyway. The very big companies, it's an open question about how much tax they pay anyway because they have these very complicated company tax structures where all the money seems to vanish off to the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands. So, you know... Um, it's a big issue in terms of the budget because it takes a lot of money out of the budget. It doesn't seem to create much economic growth. Uh, and so you'd question why the government wants to do it. But I think we only have to look at who are the big donors to the Liberal Party. And let's face it, the Liberal Party has always represented capital and the, the power of big money. So it's not surprising that they would be in favour of a tax benefit for those companies. And as you say, it was really their centrepiece for the election, jobs and growth. Um, presumably this policy will deliver that, Ben. Well... Time will tell, I suppose, Amy. I don't see the government getting it through the Senate, so it'll no. probably be a dead letter, I think, anyway. And then we'll be stuck at the beginning and what exactly this government will take forward as their platform, which maybe we'll see in the May budget. Yes, the May budget is coming up and there's all sorts of rumours, as there always are, about what the government plans to do. I don't know what it's going to do about housing affordability, what it can do about housing affordability. Uh, of course, we, there's plenty of things it could try to do, like it could wind back negative gearing and capital gains tax discount and all those big tax breaks to investors and landlords, but no one expects it to do that. Uh, you know, what, what else the government has planned, I think we'll, we'll find out in May. But yeah, at the moment, the government is in a, in a sense a kind of like a really a kind of drifting and, and still seems to be fairly rudderless under Turnbull. And surprisingly so, because uh, we had many, many expectations that uh, that there would be some kind of platform. The only kind of platform that we're seeing at the moment is 18C and the need to change the Racial Discrimination Act. That seems to be the most pressing issue on the <laughs> minds of government backbenchers in particular. But yep. um, that has gone to Cabinet, hasn't it, Ben? Uh, yeah, it, it's gone to Cabinet and it will in fact go to the Parliament. So the government is pressing ahead with watering down the 
Racial Discrimination Act. This is, of course, an article of faith for movement conservatives, for the right wing of the Liberal Party and for conservative columnists like Andrew Bolt, who was, of course, himself prosecuted under the Racial Discrimination Act. The government wants to water down the clause in the Act 18C, which makes it unlawful to offend, insult, humiliate people on the basis of their race. Uh, so essentially the government wants to make it easier for people to be racist, <laughs> to speak racially mm. um, about uh, other minorities. Um, and, you know, you, you might have many reasons, that you could posit many reasons why the government would want this to be the case. But I think the reason Malcolm Turnbull has moved on this is he's basically caved into the Conservatives in his party yet again. Placating, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, just finally, Ben, with the arts funding that we saw cut from the Australia Council about two years ago now, um, we now have seen that the Catalyst uh, program, which is what it was termed after it was called something like the National Excellence for the Artists. National Program for Excellence, Excellence in the Arts. There you go. Yes. What a great name that was. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah, um, which was obviously the centrepiece of uh, Attorney General George Brandis's, you know, policy platform for the arts. Now we've seen that they've actually just gotten rid of that. What is happening with the funding that they took from the Australia Council? How much of it is actually going to go back to it? Some of it is going back is the answer, but not all of it. So uh, yes, uh, the government has cut a lot of money from the arts, from funding for the arts since 2013, since Tony Abbott was elected in 2013. Uh, in 2014, there were major cuts to the arts budget um, in the May budget. In 2015, the government took $105 million off the Australia Council to create this new national program for excellence in the arts. Um, uh, in the last week or so, we've had the news that the government is finally returning some of that money back to the Australia Council um, and it's getting rid of its so-called catalyst program. So, um, yeah, all told um, around about sort of depend depending on how you count it between sort of 60 and 25 million dollars is going back to the Australia Council so that is welcome news for the Australia Council but it certainly doesn't repair all the damage that's been done well it's significantly affected small um, arts organizations and individuals hasn't it I mean some of these organizations couldn't continue without the funding they were getting Absolutely. The Australia Council defunded around 60 smaller organisations last year um, as a result of these funding cuts. Um, and some of those organisations have already folded. Um, and we know that uh, grant pools for individual artists are now something like, um, they're basically one third of what they were um, under the Labor government. So there's been very, very significant austerity for the small end of town in the arts. Mm. Well, it's really concerning. And um, and I actually went to a panel discussion uh, for Mianjin, uh, the launch of Mianjin, and Frank Morehouse wrote a piece there, which is, the I guess, their major piece on the front cover about what yeah, is how a writer. Yeah, was that? Worth. I really wanted to go to that. It was really interesting. Um, it, it actually was quite thought-provoking because a lot of people on the panel uh, disagreed with Frank and didn't think that writers should be paid or rely on um, government funding or were, were really even um, quite, uh, what's the word, allergic to the idea of actually ever receiving anything from the government. Um, so I was quite struck because I thought, 
you know, this would almost be a bit of a, you know. A love in. Yeah, exactly. Well, of course writers should be paid and of course they should be paid well and of course government actually has a role to play in our, um, you know, I guess cultural and artistic life and if people are undervaluing writers then the government should actually do as Whitlam did um, and really put the money behind it because we are all, um, you know, benefit from those discussions. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't – it didn't go that way. So uh, people can actually check out the video online to see that discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real worry when we have writers, the statue of Frank Morehouse, who basically can't pay the rent. Yeah. Um, I remember reading a story about Richard Flanagan, the famous novelist, was basically looking at taking a job in the mines before he won the Booker. Mm. Um, I talked to Charlotte Wood, obviously another well-known novelist last year for an interview. Uh, She told me she could not make a living from writing novels. Uh, You know, uh, she did go on to then win a fairly major prize shortly after talking to her. So, I mean, you know, that obviously has helped her. But um, yeah, if you don't, if you're not in the the lucky situation of winning some of these lucrative prizes, it's very, very difficult to to live as a writer in Australia. And I, I don't think there's a lot of policy justification for that. We employ something like a thousand musicians across the various op- operas and orchestras in this country on full time wages. Mm. Uh, you know, in comparison to that, literature gets a tiny sliver of the funding for the performing arts. There's never been a policy justification for that split up, you know, for that carving up of the pie, really. So mm-hmm. I, I can't see a really good reason. And, you know, for those who are worried about taking the government's money, you don't have to apply for the grants. No, exactly. <laughs> no one's forcing you to take <laughs> the government's money. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, Ben. Thank you so much for coming in. It was really, really interesting to have a chat today. Yeah, always, Amy. Thanks, mate. And this is Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense with 3 FM, And we are chatting now with Amber Jamison, who is a reporter at The Guardian US, and she joins us from New York City. Hi, Amber. Hi, Amy. How are you going? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm battling the end of winter cold, but apart from that, I'm ready for spring in New York. <laughs> Has it been snowing quite a lot? Because I think I saw that with Washington... Yeah, we had this sort of big blizzardy dump, which just meant there was a, there's still sort of a little bit of ice in the streets. It's nearly all melted, but yeah, now it's just rain. All oh, right, not so romantic. <laughs> No, it's not movie, not not cinematic. Um, so, Amber, it's so great to have you back because um, we've got, I mean, a, a great deal to cover and particularly one of the things mm. that's happened recently in the last um, few days is uh, that the... The healthcare, so it's called the American Healthcare Act, which sounds very patriotic, and uh, was meant to be voted on on Friday. Is that correct? That's correct. And so this was sort of supposed to be Trump's big first signature legislation. Uh, he'd been slamming uh, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Uh, it was kind of dubbed Obamacare by um, the Republicans. And now you've actually seen the American Health Care Act, often dubbed Trump Care uh, by the Democrats. Um, but this was sort of after he always would talk about how, uh, you know, Obamacare was this incredibly expensive um, program that, that didn't work and it was sort of socialised health care that he was going to um, scrap it and put it in a new system which was unveiled um, only a few weeks ago, the American Health Care Act, which 
basically there's, there's a whole bunch. I mean, American healthcare is just a nightmare. I've been here four years and I'm still so confused on what, how it all works. But one of the main things that this was removing um, was that everyone uh, sort of had to have healthcare, otherwise you paid a fee. So it was sort of removing that, uh, the, the forcing people to highly encourage them to, to insure, which is how Obama sort of got you know, many millions more people insured. Um, and some of the new things in the, in the, in the Healthcare Act, I mean, the, the Congressional Budget Office, which is the office that sort of explains how much legislation is going to cost, said that 24 million people would lose insurance under Trump's um, plan and that old people and poor people would be the most affected. In fact, old people would pay five times more what young people would pay for healthcare. Um, and so what that meant is that actually uh, it was really unpopular with both extreme Republicans and, and Democrats and liberals. Um, so the Republicans were really quite horrified that it was going to be very expensive for older people, um, but also very annoyed that, uh, you know, it was also going to be um, some... Essentially, you still got tax credits uh, for your health care, so they were annoyed that actually it was still, as far as they were concerned, too much health care. Too progressive. Um, while, yeah, and so, and so Democrats were, you know, obviously very frustrated about how it was going to be taking away that it was, you know, mandated healthcare and also that um, there was going to be big cuts to Medicaid, which is what covers the poorest. Um, And what it meant was that it didn't, it totally failed. They failed to get the numbers. It was supposed to vote on it on Thursday. It got pushed back to Friday. And all Friday, the Trump team was sort of saying, there'll be a vote at 3.30, like this is definitely happening. Um, And then Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, had to go to the White House and tell Trump, look, we do not have the votes and it's not going to get up. But what's happened from that now is that Trump is very much trying to spin it as saying, um, you know, that means that the Democrats own Obamacare and when that explodes, they will come to us wanting to save whatever is left. And he said, you know, here's the good news. Healthcare is now totally the property of the Democrats. So he's sort of claiming he's very much now just putting the entire healthcare system only on the Democrats and also saying that he just will sort of it will be exploding whether that he will be encouraging it to explode or not sort of remains to be seen um but i think he realized as many have over the years trying to implement healthcare, it's incredibly difficult um legislation to get through and i think that trump sort of wanted to move on and focus on tax reform and other things he cares more about than he does about health care well it's quite incredible to blame the uh former government when he actually came out multiple times in his um in his campaign rally speeches saying that he would repeal and replace obamacare straight away as soon as he got in it would be the first thing he would do and um i saw yeah i saw a video um yesterday that had him just recently saying, I never said that. I never said I'd repeal and replace it. And then, you know, everyone plays the clips where he said it multiple times. Um, It's really quite disturbing. But one of the other things I found... Yeah, exactly, like a parallel universe. Um, (laughs) But as you say, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, um, has kind of got in a bit of stick for this because he's basically, it almost seems that Donald Trump potentially is looking at him and blaming him for the fact that he hasn't been able to get the numbers to push it through and also that it was it's really seen as his first centrepiece, you know, piece of legislation and it hasn't even been able to be voted upon because, you know, they don't want to, they want to spare themselves the embarrassment of losing. 
Absolutely. And I think you're, you're right with the Paul Ryan thing. I mean, directly afterwards. Uh, so sort of an odd thing is that when people found out that it was going to be um, pulled, not by any formal announcement, but that a Washington Post reporter literally had the um, Trump call him from the Oval Office and say, we've pulled it. And that's how it was sort of announced, um, the, first, the first announcement. And in that interview he was very trump was very careful to say you know oh paul ryan did a very good job you know i support paul ryan and the rest of it but those two have had a very complicated relationship already you know paul ryan was never someone who was an a very strong supporter of trump at all paul, paul ryan's much more moderate um than trump is and and much more um you know just has often been very critical of some of trump's um more you know like anti-muslim the muslim ban and the sort of racism and so forth he has uh been calling out so they have a very difficult relationship so i think there is obviously this tussle with this sort of this big legislation getting dumped on paul ryan and then him being blamed um for the inability to get the votes. Uh, so I think you're going to sort of see that difficult relationship between the lawmakers and the president kind of continue in, in the months and years ahead. Absolutely. And I mean, he really has done a full-on 360 in terms of where he started, which was you know, very publicly coming out against Trump during the election campaign and now pretty much just staying silent on most issues. Um, I guess, you know, he he wanted to have this role and, and this is the kind of compromise you have to make. I mean, that's what you see in Australia as well. People have to toe the party line and support the party leader regardless of their, their um, necessarily their own beliefs and so forth. So, I mean, I think the, the healthcare one, it's sort of hard because, I, I you know, it's, Obama, sorry, Obama, Trump, um, as much as he, um, you know, would openly criticise um, Obamacare, he also, you know, did, did come out saying when they first started looking at the healthcare, he said, oh, you've got no idea how difficult healthcare legislation is, which made Bernie Sanders and everyone else involved in healthcare legislation go, uh, yes, we do know, we've been working on it for years, it's incredibly complicated, mm. yes, like there's a reason the plan is how it is now, it involves a lot of debate between Democrats and Republicans to get passed, it's not a, it's not a perfect system, one of the big criticisms of the system right now is that, um, in many regions, there's only one insurance available on the market, uh, on the sort of Obamacare market, which is it's different because most people, like myself, your employer, your employer pays for your insurance. Obamacare often applies to people who don't necessarily, who don't get um, insurance from their employers. And in certain areas, there's only one insurance available and that's, you just have to pay the price because there's only one option. So it's not that it's this perfect system. Um, and I do wonder whether, I mean, I think we will see uh, whether or not you know, uh, Trump and the Republican um, Congress actually make any um, reform to fix Obamacare as it is now. I mean, they'd always said repeal and replace, not reform it. But considering they couldn't get a replacement passed, um, whether you will see any sort of attempts, you know, to to change any of the sort of issues around taxes for such pharmaceutical companies and so forth, whether they will change any sort of policies along the way to improve the system for um, their constituents. Mm. Well, let's keep an eye on this because um, clearly you can't just not even put a, a bill up to vote and then say, okay, we've done it now, <laughs> success, <laughs> fixed yeah, a key and problem. Now, and now it's all on the Democrats. Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, as soon as Obamacare explodes, then we'll get together and piece together, a, you know, a great healthcare plan for the people is what um, Trump tweeted. And it's sort of like, oh, gosh. you know, which is as opposed to, you know, what he's, his sort of next piece of legislation expected is, is to... Um, 
announced tax reform. So, like, you know, as we know with politicians, that the normal is to try and reform a system, um, not completely throw the entire thing out and put a brand new one in. So we'll just have to see if that ever happens. Yeah, well, maybe if they have some more time, they could get their brains trust together and actually draft a piece of legislation that ad- addresses these issues. Um, let's let's go to uh, the Russia developments, Amber, because I know this has happened in the last week and a half to two weeks, and it's a continuing mm-hmm. thing to watch. Um, and we've seen James Comey, I guess, be the centre of this in terms of, uh, and he's the FBI director, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, he, he's the yeah, so where are we up to in this uh, Russia situation and, and I guess the, the ties or the alleged ties between um, Trump's team and Russia? We know that some of Trump's team had actually definitely been speaking to the Russian ambassador during the election campaign, but where are we at now with this? So basically it was last Monday, which was when James Comey came out and officially confirmed um, for the first time that uh, you know, the FBI was investigating links between Russia and the Trump campaign um, and that more than one person associated with the Trump campaign is under investigation for their ties to the Russian government. They have not, they will not confirm or deny whether Trump himself is involved, but we've been hearing much more about um, Trump's acquaintances, his former campaign manager, um, Paul Manafort, and Michael Flynn, who was a security advisor who resigned. Um, so there's other people whose, whose names have been coming up linked um, to it. They also, in that, um, both the FBI director and the um, NSA director confirmed that there was no information to support Trump's argued claim that he tweeted about being wiretapped by um, Obama during the uh, election. So it's sort of a very odd situation where you're having the FBI and the NSA director actively say that the president is lying during a, um, you know, testifying in front of Congress about it. So it was a sort of very big, bizarre thing. Um, Now it's sort of at this odd stage that tomorrow there was supposed to be another public hearing um, with some pretty major um, names from the Obama time. So... um, former people from, from like former intelligence um, and defence officials from um, under the Obama administration were all supposed to testify tomorrow. That's now been delayed. Um, one of the things where this also just gets quite weird is that, um, that Devin Nunes, who's the, uh, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, who is the one that's investigating this, and he was also a member of the Trump transition team. We should remember that it was Obama that uh, opened this investigation, not Trump. Um, but, you know, this is... The, the, the investigation is done by both Republicans and Democrats and, and you had Democrats and Repu- you had a lot of Republicans as well calling for this investigation just to clarify any involvement um, of Russia in the in the election, not just tied to the Trump campaign but other involvement such as the leaking of the DNC emails and the emails from the um, Hillary campaign. Um, but what you've got now is that Nunes, who's the, the chairman, uh, has said basically that he has seen documents that he can't specify uh, that make him quote, very uncomfortable um, over the prospect that uh, certain identities of Trump associates would be, quote, unmasked. And there's all this sort of... He's sort of rumouring that, you know, are we... There needs to be sort of sort of more closed-door discussion done, um, which has really upset the um, Democrats. It does seem that possibly this information has come from the White House. He was sort of spotted at the White House and he's not saying where he's gotten this new information that only he has seen and that he cannot reveal. Um, so now you've got both the FBI Director James Comey and the NSA Director Michael Rogers coming back again, um, probably tomorrow I believe, 
but this time it will be behind closed doors um, for them to testify and then hopefully uh, another one will be happening soon with some of those bigger names. There is a, a Senate inquiry, um, sorry, a Senate investigation happening this Thursday, you know, a, a, you know, one of those events where people come out and talk, but it's not sort of these big major names that we're expecting anything dramatic to appear from. But you have heard, you know, like Paul Manafort, the former campaign um, head, has already said that he will speak publicly about it, and you've had sort of Jared Kushner, who's the, the son-in-law of Trump and, and now a key advisor, um, has said that he will speak at it because he had also met with the Russian ambassador. So it's sort of this whole thing that is is now sort of hanging over the um, entire administration is that that while they are, you know, governing the um, election, the campaign associates of the Trump administration are being investigated for their ties to Russia. So it's this sort of huge cloud that um, is really hanging over and likely to hang over I guess the entire administration, really. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable claims what you're you're hearing when it comes to Russian interference in the election. Absolutely. And what could be the potential outcome? Because how much power do, does this Senate committee have in terms of uh, if they do discover something, what are they going to do about it? And this is where no one really wants to give any definitive answers on, on what will or will not happen. I mean, you know, that will this, I think a lot of people like to think like, oh, is Trump going to get impeached because of this? I'm highly, highly unlikely. It's probably more likely that they would be showing, you know, if anything, some um, Trump associates having some connection. But, you know, it, it is not known what any of the consequences of this investigation will be yet. Right. Well, this is really interesting. Hopefully we it does become transparent um, in the end as to what has gone on and uh, the testified, the testimonials of people who are testifying. Um, Amber, another thing that uh, has come up is also um, in particular the... Uh, the travel ban 2.0. So we had, mm-hmm. you know, the first travel ban, which you and I discussed quite a lot because, um, you know, there was protesting at airports and, um, you know, n- and numerous judges coming out and saying this is actually unlawful and putting a temporary stop on it and then banning the ban. Um so we have this 2.0 version, which was supposedly going to bypass or not be an issue. It was put together in the sense that uh, it would be non-controversial and, and um, it would get no contestation from the courts. But we have seen a judge, um, you know, take action on this ban in Hawaii. Could you um, just share with us that development? Yes. Yeah, so basically what, what it meant is that the, uh, the federal judge in Hawaii ruled um, before the ban even came into effect, and I think it was March 15, they ruled it was unlawful immediately, um, and therefore it never actually even started. Um, and with this travel ban, before there'd been the six countries, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, Somalia, Sudan, and Libya, that were all, uh, anyone from those countries would be banned from entering the US from 90 days. This new one um, got rid of Iraq from the list, so they, uh, people from Iraq would be would be still fine to travel. Um, and there were a few other changes in the wording, um, specifically getting rid of um, sort of comments about religion. Um, however, uh, the the judge in Hawaii actually very much could have quoted uh, Trump and his campaign staff and their specific statements and comments during the campaign uh, about a Muslim ban. Um, and then as well, Rudy Giuliani's comments when the first one uh, was introduced and he went on television and said, oh, yes, Trump, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he said along the lines of, you know, Trump called me and asked me how to make the Muslim ban legal, and this is how we did it. Um, and so they very much were able to 
say that no, even though, you know, you technically you can't sort of decide the mentality of it. You know, the, the legal argument is that, you know, you can't quite argue, you can't quite know why um, a president is making an executive order, you can't speculate. But this judge ruled that actually, if yes, I can, because they've spoken very publicly about it. Um, and it is trying to be a Muslim ban, which is completely unconstitutional. Um, and so a judge in Hawaii stopped it, a judge in Maryland stopped it as well. Um, where it's getting a little bit uh, messier for this, because we, we are expecting a bit of a legal battle with it, which was that um, on Friday a judge in Virginia actually um, said that because this travel ban didn't specify comments about religion, that therefore it actually was lawful, um, and that and they ruled in favour of the ban. Uh, the ban is still... The travel ban is still um, not um, on hold. It's not currently able to... does not currently exist. Um, but you've also had today um, 12 state attorney generals and the governor from Mississippi, um, and all these states are mainly southern states, um, all filed a brief claiming that the president's immigration order is lawful and within his authority. And so there's just going to be this sort of more and more legal battles over this. Um, it is possible that it will go to the Supreme Court. That's sort of what um, Trump has been pushing. Um, but, yeah, so at the moment, he it's sort of hit all these legal blocks. It hasn't, hasn't been allowed to be implemented yet, um, but that doesn't mean that it won't be implemented later if it... Uh, you know, if the if courts rule that actually it is lawful um, and within the president's authority to make that immigration order, right? So, and the other thing that I saw is that uh, the judge in Hawaii has been receiving death threats and um, has needed to have a significant amount of protection. I hadn't seen that, but that does not surprise me even remotely. Um, just based on the incredibly difficult sort of uh, features that exist around uh, anything, you know, any report, anytime I ever report on uh, anything to do with the travel ban, you get a huge amount of, I mean, I get a huge amount of threats myself on social media, so I can't imagine what right. the actual judge himself ruling would get. Yeah, gosh, it's really scary to, to hear about that, um, you know, given that he's just doing his job, you're just doing your job. Um, and Amber, just finally, I know that uh, you're across a very recent development um, only in the last few hours uh, that uh, the Trump presidency is becoming more of a family affair. Could you share with us that news? Yeah, so basically it's Jared Kushner, the son-in-law uh, of Trump, Ivanka's uh, husband, has just been announced as the head of the White House Office of American Innovation, um, which is basically a, a new department specifically designed to try and overhaul the federal government with input from the private sector. So it's a bunch of um, from business leaders and so forth. And and it's this very sort of wide, all-encompassing, um, you know, they were sort of going to be looking at, like, helping to sort of privatise um, some government functions. They're sort of this, like, very large um, thing that it, that, it, that he will be responsible for. As in the past, you know, um, Trump also mentioned that Jared Kushner would be, you know, integral to discussions about um, a Middle East peace deal between, um, you know, the Israeli and Palestinians. So there's all of these things that... But um, Jared Kushner has this quite large role within the campaign, um, sorry, within the administration. Uh, at the same time, his wife Ivanka also on Friday got announced, or Thursday got announced, that she is now getting full security clearance, so she'll be able to um, have the same level of access to classified information. Um, and she now has a desk in the White House and she'll be receiving security 
like public communications devices, phones and so forth um, that are all properly secure. Um, and so it's basically this thing where you now have Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump in this incredibly powerful um, role. So now this real power couple in D.C. Um, and it raises all these ethical issues. I was speaking with some um, former ethics lawyers under George Bush the other day and they were saying that essentially it means that there's a bunch of things because of Ivanka's own business dealings herself that she can't be um, involved in, so she shouldn't be involved in any discussions around trade to do with garments since she has a clothing company, um, and that Jared therefore also shouldn't be involved with those because they're because they're married. Um, also, she, you know, they both have issues things in real estate. Kushner's family has a large real estate um, holding in New York, so they shouldn't have anything to do with that. Um, there's also Krishna's brother owns uh, a very large uh, an insurance company, um, and so he seemed to disappear last week and go skiing while the um, healthcare debate was going on. So you've sort of got this couple that is incredibly powerful, but also has all these possible issues of um, like ethical issues of what they can and can't be involved in, as well as being the son-in-law and daughter of the president. So it's it's an interesting time to 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 for DC, I guess. Very interesting. Um, I'm talking to Amber Jamison from the Guardian US reporter there. And Amber, just one more thing. Um, we saw Ivanka sitting around the table when uh, there was a meeting with German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Um, and this is, you know, pre this appointment, um, I believe. Just how much, you know, what what do you, what are people to do about these ethical concerns? Because uh, you know, is there a governing body that really oversees and polices this? There is. The thing that makes it difficult is that the um, administration is trying to argue that uh, Avanka is not a government employee because she uh, does not take a salary and doesn't have an official title and is not officially sworn in, um, even if she does have full security clearance and a and a desk in the White House. Um, and so it's sort of this difficult thing where she is she's trying pretty hard to um, to make sure that she is you know having no official conflicts of interest. She hired a very sort of top law firm in DC that you know looked after Rex Tillerson, who's the Secretary of State and the former head of um, Exxon Mobil. She hired his firm to make sure that her conflict of interest was sort of being dealt with properly. Um, when I spoke to these ethics lawyers the other day, they actually said that they expect. Um, both Jared and Ivanka to do the right thing when it comes to the conflicts of interest because otherwise there will be, it's, you know, it's actually sort of a criminal problem. Um, and so it, there are very serious consequences to it. And they did note that, you know, even if it is obviously big charges of nepotism and it's concerning when the um, presidency in the White House becomes a family business, at the same time, compared to advisors such as Steve Bannon, who, as we know, is this incredibly hardline, um, conservative, bright, former Breitbart um, news editor and, and just has a, a very extreme views. In comparison, they're both very moderate um, and particularly being quite socially moderate. Um, and so people often sort of regard that, well, if Trump is going to be um, focusing on just a few hand-picked advisors, at least these two seem better than some of the other ones that he's picked. <laughs> it's quite amazing to think that uh, that's it's all relative <laughs> and relatives. <laughs> Classic. Thank you, Amber. Your insights are, as always, exceptionally valuable and um, it's just been really interesting to hear firsthand what's happening over there in America. 
It's fascinating to live through, so I always enjoy being able to tell you about it, Amy. Oh, awesome. Well, we'll hopefully catch up with you again soon. Thanks so much for joining us, Amber. No worries. Have a great day. That was... And you're listening to 3RRR. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I have with me now in the studio, Mark Wakeham, who is CEO of Environment Victoria. And he's kindly joined us to discuss the closure of Hazelwood coal-fired power station, as well as the mine, which is um, which is closing, and the many, many various implications um, of this. Uh, it's It's definitely a done deal, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, it's underway now, Amy. Um, it's good to join you this morning. Thank you. Um, so Hazelwood has eight units and uh, three of them closed yesterday. Another one shut this morning, very early this morning. And we're expecting another two to shut today and the final two tomorrow. Amazing. It's just amazing that it can happen so seemingly quickly and yet not. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it has felt like quite a long time to us, actually. I mean, the power station's uh, now 53 years old and... Uh, and there have been previous um, attempts by government to retire the power station. Um, so the state government back in 2010 in Victoria um, was looking at a plan to start gradually closing the power station beginning in 2014. And it's interesting, there's a lot of voices now saying, well, we should have been doing this more gradually. Well, that mm. was the plan, actually. Um, and then that plan got scrapped by um, the incoming Bayou government in 2010. And then there was another plan federally um, uh, by the Gillard government to retire our oldest and dirtiest power stations and that one also fell by the wayside. So in, in some respects, it's, it feels like it's happening very quickly this week, but it's also been coming for a very long time. So some governments have been taking a proactive approach to this issue and, and people saw it coming. Is that correct? Uh, I think everybody in the Latrobe Valley, for instance, has known for years that this day is coming. But uh, when you do see governments um, sort of declare that they're going to take action and then they don't follow through, um, I guess you start feeling more comfortable about the longer term future. And I guess the surprise at the end of the day really is that it wasn't governments making a decision to close Hazelwood. It was the second largest energy utility in the world, Engie, which is a French company, and they have made a, a global decision to shift their portfolio from coal to renewables. Mm. And the implications of that are now playing out around the world. And that's one of the main reasons we're seeing um, Hazelwood Power Station close this week. So let's talk about Engie because um, I was interested to see that it's it's run by a female CEO, which is fantastic <laughs> to start with, but also that they were being proactive on a number of fronts. One, they seem to be quite committed to um, changing their, I guess, output for the better in terms of its impact on climate change. So Hazelwood isn't the only um, coal-fired power station that they've considered closing and they have actually closed other power stations around the world, um, but also that it was about um, the age of the power station and that it really had to invest a substantial amount of money into it to keep it going and to repair it, to make it um, safe for workers. So yeah, that's right. So um, there was a new CEO at Engie, which took ownership of um, Hazelwood when companies amalgamated several years ago. And, and the new CEO a couple of years ago, Isabel Kosher, um, decided that the business needed to go in a new direction. And um, she, she had seen the writing on the wall. I mean, the last three years globally, there's been more investments in renewable energy than there's been in coal, oil and gas combined. So if you're the second largest energy utility and you want to remain the second largest energy utility, you've got to 
be part of the renewables revolution, not just be left stranded with a whole lot of fossil fuel assets. So they've been doing a review of their business globally. Um, they've been closing some power stations. They've been selling other coal-fired power stations. And in fact, they want to sell the other power station that they own in the Latrobe Valley, Luyang B. Um, and that, but at the same time as that's happened, um, Hazelwood has been hit with some um, uh, notices by the WorkSafe Authority. It's a really old power station. They haven't been investing in maintenance, um, partly because they didn't know what their future was. You know, when one day we have a carbon price, the next day we don't have a carbon price. You don't know if you're going to be operating in five, ten years, and you know. To make the decision to spend $200 million to upgrade your power station, that's a big decision and they just haven't been doing that. So, um, you know, there were problems with the power station that were going to require serious investment. There was also a change in corporate strategy. And, and I guess the final factor, which I think was a pretty important, well, there's a few other factors, but one of the final factors is um, that, you know, the French government partly owned this company and the French government were holding the Paris Climate Summit and they were trying to bring the world together to get an agreement to deal with climate change. And um, they were under quite a bit of pressure from activists, um, including us in Victoria, um, to demonstrate their leadership. And, you know, you can't be, on the one hand, championing a global climate deal and, on the other hand, owning the dirtiest power station in the industrialised world and perhaps the world. We just haven't been able to find the data for some other countries. Right. Well, let's talk about Hazelwood in particular because it is kind of a unique in a bad way um, power plant in the sense of what it emits into the atmosphere um, and also the resources that it uses to continue, uh, which we will now not see happen. Um, I saw that in some of the uh, information on this, that Hazelwood uses 27 billion litres of water every year and emits 7,800 tonnes of hydrochloric acid. Um, there are many com consequences for this kind of, um, you know, industrial activity, in particular environmental, but also health. Um, and we've seen air pollution be a huge issue. Um, in your view, how um, damaging has the kind of um, pollution that th th these brown uh, coal-fired power stations have put into the atmosphere, how damaging are they for the environment but also for health? Well, you know, you have organisations like the World Health Organisation saying that there's no safe level of exposure to particulates and people in the Latrobe Valley are being exposed to particulates at a much greater, higher level than, than people in Melbourne, particularly some of the, the smaller particulates. Um, and Hazelwood is a very large contributor to that in the valley. So, and, and of course, when you have chronic events like the Hazelwood mine fire, you have, you know, even larger exposure. So, unfortunately, we don't have particularly good data. Um, we don't have a great history of monitoring point sources of data and, and exposure to air pollution. That's improving, actually, in Victoria. The EPA is improving their efforts on that. Um, but there's no doubt that, you know, there will be um, people who will breathe easier in the Latrobe Valley who have respiratory illnesses and um, hopefully over time there, there will be some improvement to health. Although, unfortunately, many of these, you know, um, air pollution uh, issues that cause health problems take many years to materialise. So mm. it's going to be difficult to distinguish from, you know, you know what, what the benefits of power stations closing are compared with what the impacts of something like the Hazelwood mine fire were.
Yeah, because we can talk about pollution and particulates, but when you look at the list of what's actually mm. included, it's quite disturbing. And I think that sometimes we um, say, oh, well, it's just kind of this dark thing in the sky sometimes that look, makes it look like smog or fog and, you know, it's it's kind of benign. But um, the, there are a range of things that um, come out of these, um, you know, emissions uh, that that are emitted during the powering process. And it includes sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, as you say, invisible particulate matter, mercury, which we're all, you know, told that's bad. Um, arsenic. Arsenic, yeah. yeah. So, you know, these are things that particularly people in Gippsland have been breathing in. Um, and and also, as you say, during the fire, um, that was a, a huge health concern. In terms of the EPAs, um, involvement in monitoring this, but also stepping in, um, how much power have they had to be able to to do something about this? Well, I think the Hazelwood Mine Fire was a bit of a wake-up call. I mean, there was real... When, when the Hazelwood Mine Fire happened and the community was trying to get a good understanding of what level of exposure they'd been, there was a lot of criticism that some of the monitoring points were in the wrong areas, that they wouldn't really give a good read on what the impacts for the community would be. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they they went to efforts to put in extra monitoring points and they've recently gone through a sort of co-design process with the local community to work out what the monitoring regime should be. So that's, that's a really good improvement. But, uh, you know, I think it's also important to remember that um, people in Latrobe Valley have been exposed to these impacts because the Latrobe Valley has been powering Melbourne and Victoria and in some fact, you know, other states, other states South Australia particularly, for many, many years. Um, and so we've got a real responsibility um, to look after those communities and, and invest in health services, etc. but also as the economy changes in the Latrobe Valley to ensure that we're properly investing in diversifying that economy and making sure that it's not hit with more disadvantage as one of its largest sort of jobs um, sites in the region shuts down. Well, it is, you know, a core part of the uh, the economy in that area. And as we know, in Gippsland, many parts of Gippsland, they struggle um, in terms of economic issues. What are the consequences of this closure in terms of job losses? Um, and I know that there has been some level of um, the government stepping in to try and move some workers into other coal-fired power stations. What's the update on that? Yeah, so at Hazelwood, there's there's 450 employees of the Hazelwood Power Station and there's roughly another 300 contractors. So they will be the most affected, so 750 workers. Uh, and then they're quite highly paid jobs. So they spend their money throughout the, the Gippsland economy. Um, but there have been some really good measures put in place to reduce the impacts of Hazelwood's closure. So of those 750 workers, around 250 of them will stay on site at Hazelwood and they will be um, beginning work on rehabilitation of the mine and decommissioning the power station. Another 150 of them will be redeployed um, to AGL's Loyang Power Station. And then um, a number of them will take retirements and, and redundancy packages. The, the average age of workers at Hazelwood is around 55. Those who've been working for a very long time um, at, at the power station are probably pretty close to retirement. So there's been 
pretty good effort to ensure that workers um, are supported, that there's opportunities to transition to other industries. And then the other thing that I guess is designed to address the fact that um, the rest of the economy in the Valley will also um, be impacted is that there's over $300 million of government money on the table for the Latrobe Valley to diversify um, that economy, which is, a, you know, it's a pretty significant contribution. It may not be enough, um, but it's the first time that we've had a coal power station closure in Australia and that level of investment. Right. So, the other thing um, that is mentioned or floated in in one of your documents um, or submissions was uh, a solar hot water industry um, and suggesting that this that this area could be, I guess, a new place for that, um, that industry to grow. Could you um, share with us the reason why that might be a good solution? Yeah, look, there's there's um, a lot of people with a lot of energy and vision in the Latrobe Valley who've seen this change coming for a while and have been trying to um, establish new industries. And there's one in particular, um, a project called Earthworker, which is a cooperatively owned um, solar hot water manufacturing company. And um, they've got a really good model. They've got, you know, access to um, the manufacturing equipment, a workshop in, in Morwell. And what they really need is a market for their products. And so they're, they're really looking for government both state and federal to say, all right, well, um, we really need jobs in this region. Um, we construct housing, we construct social housing, um, public housing, and um, we will supply our public housing tenants with solar hot water that's manufactured in the Latrobe Valley. Um, and that, that's a that's a really wonderful vision, I think, um, one that we should be supporting. Um, and the, the critical thing is that there's that the government helps create a market for those projects. And, and the obvious market is public housing. Right. And how helpful has the government been in, not only because I know they've contributed money, yep. and particularly the state government, more so than the federal government, but what about the policies around the spending of the money? Yeah, look, um, so the state government's contributed around $270 million and the federal government $40 million. That's interesting, isn't it? When you look at who's got the larger budget. Mm -hmm. Um, And the state government sent up an organisation called the Latrobe Valley Authority, which has the pretty difficult task of working out, you know, which horses to back in the Latrobe Valley. Um, And it's pretty early days. uh, they've, they've started with quite a few sort of construction projects, a new um, aquatic centre and sporting facilities in the Latrobe Valley. Um, but the, I guess the, the longer term challenge will be um, developing industries which create jobs over the longer term and not just the one-off hit of construction jobs. Mm. And utilising the skills that these workers already have. I mean, what kind of skills do they have well, the, the power station operators are, are often electric, electricians or mechanics with, um, you know, quite specific skills. That's why the the deal to get um, to 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 uh, redeploy. Um, younger workers from Hazelwood to other power stations is really important because some of those skills are not immediately transferable. But there have been workers who have um, gone on to other jobs in the solar industry, for instance, in Latrobe Valley. There's a Gippsland Solar is a business that's doing particularly well. They've um, they've grown from sort of nothing to 35 employees um, very quickly. Um, so you know that. The Latrobe Valley, particularly in power generation, has a lot of skills that we should be looking to maintain because as we close power stations, we obviously need to be building new power stations and the Latrobe Valley can play a big part in that.
Well, as you say, it's, this is just the start of um, you know future closures that will inevitably happen. And uh, not only because of climate change, which is a huge reason why they should, but also because they're getting old. And this infrastructure really it doesn't have a forever on, on it. Uh, it expires or you need to, as, as we've seen, reinvest a lot of money into making sure that it is maintained. What kind of level of closures do you think we'll start seeing in the next five to ten years in Australia? Well, we've had nine coal-fired power stations close in Australia in the last five years. Um, And that's been without active government policy, really, um, and in a messy, (laughs) to, to, you know, to say the best of it, a messy policy environment um, and without Australia having signed up to the Paris Climate Commitment. So, um, I mean, if we're going to meet our Paris climate commitment targets and, and in fact, if we're going to try and play our role in limiting climate change to two degrees, which, you know, would still have some pretty catastrophic impacts, um, we really need to be retiring the remaining 20 um, coal-fired power stations around Australia in, in the next decade or, or by 2030 at the latest. Um, so, you know, that's that's a couple of coal-fired power stations a year. Um, if Hazelwood is requiring $300 million of investments um, from government, that's around $6 billion that we need. And at the moment, we just have no plan from particularly the federal government to manage this process, um, either to... Um, say, well, this is the time frame for power station closures, which would give people who want to build renewable energy power stations um, or battery storage plenty of notice that, that those projects will be required. Um, and uh, there's no notice for those communities of the timeframes that they need to diversify their economy. And there's no um, certainty for workers uh, and there's no investments in in creating new jobs in those regions. So at the moment, it's rudderless. We, we've got, it's a really d- disappointing situation, actually, where government's position is essentially let's leave it up to the market and our energy future is being decided by CEOs in Paris and Tokyo. Um, and in Canberra, we're sort of sitting on our hands watching it play out. And then when it does play out, we're just going for the panic button and we're, you know, we're crying crocodile tears about lost jobs or we're crying crocodile tears about energy security when the fact is we didn't have a plan and the, it's the government's job to have a plan for this. Um, it's, the, it's the government's job to have a plan to modernise power stations when they reach the end of their life. It's their job to protect citizens from climate change and to have a plan that reduces emissions across the economy and we just don't have that at the moment. So that's, I guess we're hoping that Hazelwood's closure as the largest of the nine coal-fired power stations that have closed so far in Australia and probably the one that has received the most national attention is a real turning point in the way that we manage this process Um, and we get... Um, you know, we've, we've got organisations like the Australian Council of Trade Unions, energy companies like AGL, environment groups, is industry groups like Australian Industry Group saying we actually need a plan to manage this transition from coal to renewable energy. And so I, th- I think that's really got to be one of the key issues at the, the, the next federal election. Absolutely. Well, we've seen now that... Uh that if you don't have planned closures, you can have a very short time frame or just no time frame at all. Right. Um, some of them had no notice and then you see workers lose their jobs overnight. Yeah, that's right. So if the nine power stations that have closed in the f- last five years, 
Um, communities and workers had an average of four months of notice from the moment that the power station said, we're going to be closing to when they actually close, so four months. Um, and in a couple of instances, the power station just said, that's it, we're done, we're shutting today. Um, and so you can imagine what that feels like um, for um, workers in a small town like Port Augusta, for instance, um, where, uh, you know, it's been really central to the economy in the region and it's just gone overnight. Um, and really, I, I can't believe that um, politicians who represent those communities aren't crying out for a, a way of doing this that treats those communities better. Certainly, if you're a local MP who's responsible for these areas, you should have that as one of your top priorities, if not the top priority. Yeah. And, and instead, they've been pointing the finger at renewable energy and, tar and you know, blaming renewable energy, for instance, when this is a global phenomenon. I mean, the US has shut over 200 coal-fired power stations in the last decade. They've announced another seven power station closures since Donald Trump was elected. So it's, it's almost... Regardless of the politics, this is happening around the world um, the and we need a plan bolted. to deal with it. That's right. Yeah, and and then interestingly, we did see some crocodile tears from Tony Abbott in the Herald Sun talking about how renewable energy um, is ideological and apparently, as you say, it's it's the fault of renewable energy for um, taking away our jobs in, in Hazelwood and the Latrobe Valley. Um, what kind of... I mean... Why? <laughs> There's not really much of a, a better question than that I can only come up with, but why? Do, you know, do we see this kind of um, banging on the drum of, of ideology um, from really conservative politicians who apparently, you know, these would be their constituents, surely? Yeah, it's it's the big question really. And it's I think the, it's the same question is why have we had so chaotic climate policy in Australia over the last decade. And it's hard to look past the fact that, you know, the coal, oil and gas industries are powerful industries. They are powerful um, financially, but they're also powerful politically. They, um, they are donors. They have tight connections with um, political leaders. There's a bit of a revolving door between government and industry. So, for instance, you have someone like Martin Ferguson, who was the Federal Resources Minister, now, heading, now heading the petroleum, Australian petroleum and gas um, industry peak body. Um, so, I think you see you see these political representatives, instead of standing up for their communities, they speak up for these powerful industries. Um, and I, But I, I really just don't think it's in the public interest. Yeah, putting aside climate change, which is a pretty hard thing to put aside. Definitely. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's a pretty <laughs> it big deal. It should be the key concern. That, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, communities are being smashed by it around the country, even this morning. You know, we've got a, um, a, an unseasonal cyclone happening in, in Queensland right now. Um but putting that aside, if you, if you care about things like the economy and jobs, you go where the action is and the action is in renewable energy. It's where, you know, we're getting more investment. There's many more jobs than there are in, in coal and they're in regional communities as well. They're in parts of the state and the country that are often fairly economically depressed and, could, and are crying out for jobs for young people. Um, so it, it is a bit nonsensical um, and I, I just think we've got political representatives in the in our parliaments who are not actually representing people they they're, they're rep representing 
polluting interests. Um, and until we can break that um, break that cycle, uh, we're going to continue this chaotic fashion. And and there's going to be this wild debate where we're pointing at um, you know the solutions and claiming that they're the problem. I'm talking to Mark Wakeham, CEO of Environment Victoria. It's 10.53 and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins on 3RRR. Mark, you mentioned there that um, rural and regional areas are really best placed to take advantage of renewable energy industries. And presumably that's because there's wide open spaces, there's a lot of sunlight and wind. If you're particularly close to the coast, that would also be useful. Um, In terms of the... I guess, move to renewable energy. We saw an ANU report come out, uh, I think it was a couple of months ago now, saying that it's actually cheaper and um, yet you'll save money basically to move to renewable energy. What were the findings of that ANU report? Look, it mirrors a number of other studies that have been done, which show that the the cheapest new build. So, if you if you're if you're building a, a power system from scratch, the cheapest new build would be to build it with renewable energy, because it's now cheaper to build a wind farm than it is to build a, a new coal past coal power station or a, or a gas fired power station in Australia and, and operate it. Um, and, and that's because these the renewable energy projects, while they might have reasonably high upfront costs, once they're built, you don't have any fuel costs. You're not paying for the sun or the wind. Um, the challenge in that really is that we've got all these, these legacy power stations um, and they were built many years ago, quite often with um, government funds before they were privatised and they're still pretty profitable by and large um, with the exception of, you know, expensive maintenance events, but they're pretty profitable. So... Um, we know that uh, it will be cheaper to run our energy systems with renewable energy because we won't have those ongoing fuel costs, but making that transition is quite difficult. And that's the, that's the log jam we're in because we don't have any coherent policy that helps us get from where we are to where we need to be, both for the climate, but also to have you know lower energy bills in the long term. Right. And so when we're looking at these new potential plants or, um, you know, solar arrays or farms um, and wind farms, what level of battery storage is required to provide energy security um, that would have a similar level of security as a a coal-fired power station? Because that really seems to be the sticking point in the debate between Josh Frydenberg and uh, and Jay Wetherill, the South Australian Premier, which has been playing out over the last few weeks. Yeah, look, the... We make a lot of the debate about energy security in Australia and sometimes we do it for not very good reasons. I mean, South Australia now has over 50% of their energy coming from renewable energy. So they're starting to get into the zone where you, it does it does start mattering. If it's not windy or if it's not sunny, it starts mattering. Um, although, of course, they're part of a national grid and they can import power from other states. So we're probably still overstating that fact in South Australia. In Victoria, for instance, we're, we're getting 14% of our electricity electricity from renewable energy. So we are so far away from um, from the reliability of renewable energy generation mattering that it shouldn't be a debate at all. Um, we can build plenty more wind and solar and be part of a national grid and have backups, for instance, the hydropower that we have and, and not have any energy security concerns whatsoever. Um, but the great thing is that batteries are arriving very quickly and are, and are dramatically falling in cost. So that might mean that we can actually get to 100% renewable energy in a cheaper way than what we thought was possible previously. But the thing is, I guess, um, it, we need this... Uh 
forward thinking because it takes time to build these new sources of energy um, and to invest a substantial amount of money into it and also to have policy certainty. That's right. And, you know, we don't know now because we don't have a plan. We're, We're leaving up to the market. We don't know what will happen at any of the other power stations in the Latrobe Valley. So Hazelwood's switching off this week. That has provided about 25% of the state's power. We'll be fine without it. There'll be plenty of other sources of power without it. But we don't know whether your lawn might make a decision or might not make a decision, but they might actually have a major um, incident on site with one of their turbines, puts it out of action, and we don't know that that won't happen next week. And because we don't have any plan to know that that power station is scheduled for retirement in, say, 2020 or 2022, there's no one building the replacements. So this is, I guess, this is the the problem that we have when we don't have a, a planned and orderly transition away from coal. It's not serving us in terms of the climate. It's not helping us in terms of energy security, and it's certainly not serving workers and communities who will be affected when that change comes. And in your view, who needs to be taking the front and centre role in leading this planned transition? I think it needs to be led by the federal government, but, um, you know, we have a national electricity market that involves all the states as well. So states need to be involved. So, you know, I, I, I kind of hesitate to say we need a solution that involves federal and state governments, but that's kind of what we need. Um, Sounds like COAG. Yeah, they, they <laughs> haven't always done a particularly good job of that, but no. there have been, you know, rare instances where they have actually managed to identify a problem or a crisis and fix it. And this is definitely a crisis um, that will have serious implications for their states and communities. So it's it's time that we had that level of national leadership. But that's not going to happen without a federal government that acknowledges the problem and, and wants to solve it. And we just haven't seen that appetite to date. It was good to see the Prime Minister sort of push back against Tony Abbott and say, oh, no, that's, that's ridiculous and we don't have any energy security problems. Um, but we actually need a step beyond that and, we, and a step beyond the sort of the the back of the envelope plans to build a new snowy hydro scheme and actually come up with some coherent national energy policy that sends clear signals for the next decade about the direction that we need to be heading. Absolutely. Um, Less reactive, more proactive policymaking. Um, And just finally, uh, in terms of your advocacy on this personally, um, but also Environment Victoria's advocacy, how long have you been working on this issue and in particular Hazelwood and what has been that journey? What's the journey like for you? Yeah, look, um, Environment Victoria started working on this issue in 2004 Um, I started working on it in 2005 when I was at Greenpeace and Environment Victoria actually asked Greenpeace for some help on the campaign. Um, That was originally about the the expansion of the Hazelwood coal mine back in 2005 and, you know, the government at the time did make a decision to expand the coal mine Um, and then it it became a, a campaign about replacing and closing the power station. Uh, That's been a pretty wild ride, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, We sort of uh, had two significant announcements from government um, suggesting that closure was going to happen and then they they walked away from those commitments or they didn't get the chance to deliver them because they lost office. Um, That's been pretty painful. I, I guess, you know, as someone who is absolutely terrified actually of climate change um, and what it means for our future. Uh, If we're not retiring power stations like Hazelwood, which is possibly the dirtiest in the world, we're just not serious. Um, So this is a, it's a really big milestone that is finally happening. 
Um, I wish it had happened years ago. I wish it had happened in a more planned and orderly way. You know, perhaps it had powered down more slowly, you know, over a period of a couple of years to give the community more time to adjust. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I also um, want to be optimistic about this closure and there are a number of ingredients in place where it could be looked back on as a successful example of power station closure. And um, hopefully, as I mentioned, it is the prompt for a, a more planned, accelerated way that shows that, we're, you know, that actually represents us being serious about dealing with climate change, joining the international community and, and embracing the both the... Uh, excitement but the economic opportunities in renewable energy as well because I, I actually don't think it's going to be that hard changing our power system there's some other more difficult problems actually in terms of climate change you know how do you replace um, emissions from air travel that's hard changing our power system should not be that hard retiring power stations like Hazelwood you know, the SEC retired power stations every couple of decades over the last 50, you know 80 years when it existed there was a constant retirement of power stations so this shouldn't be that hard um, and hopefully um, now that it's starting to happen, there's a bit of a growing realisation that, wow, actually nine of these things have shut in the last five years. Um, this is real. Um, hopefully it's a bit, of a bit of a light bulb moment for the country. Absolutely. And I'm sure that uh, the work that you're doing at Environment Victoria will continue that discussion and uh, put pressure on governments to make sure that they're accountable and acting on behalf of their constituents. Yeah, well, that's that's the plan to really, um, you know, Hazelwood's closing. We don't think we need to go after the next coal-fired power station. We think we need a plan to retire all 20 of them. And that's what we'll be working towards. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us and uh, taking the time to really go through the issues with us. It's been so valuable. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to have the chance to have a proper conversation about it. No, no worries. Thank you. And you're listening to 3RRR's Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I'm really excited to get stuck into this topic. Um, we have on the phone with us Eloise Ross, who is a co-programmer at the Melbourne Cinematheque. And she's also an academic in film and cinema studies or sometimes they call it screen studies now. Thanks for joining us, Eloise. No problem. Hi, Amy. Hello. Um, so with this uh, retrospective with Dorothy Arzner, which is currently showing, uh, we there, there were some great films shown by Arzner last week, uh, including Dance Girls Dance, which is one of her very well-known films. And obviously she's she's got many well-known uh, films. But this week in particular, there's some great films and I'd like to just kind of set the scene for everyone in terms of locating Dorothy Arzner and her significance as a filmmaker in Hollywood in the uh, in the 20s 30s and early 40s so first of all let's just have a quick um, I guess understanding of of Dorothy and who she was um you know was she she was one of the few women film directors working in Hollywood in the studio setting at the time. What makes her particularly interesting and special? Um, well, Dorothy Arzner is really, as you said, she wasn't the only woman directing in the studio system, um, and she certainly wasn't the first. You know, there are a number before her, Lois Weber um, and Alice Blanche, uh, Guy Blanche, but she was sort of the only woman who managed to make the transition from silent 
pictures to sound film. Um, so she was working at Paramount as an editor, a, a script writer and an editor in the early 1920s. And then she managed to direct some films at Paramount. Um, three or four silent pictures, I think. All of them lost now, unfortunately. Um, but she did direct Paramount's first talking picture and then had quite a significant career in the um, sort of the sound era. So she was the only woman who really managed to do that in the studio system. And she um, she actually secured a contract uh, with Paramount and and was um, working in that studio system for quite a while before going independent. Um, but some of her films are particularly special, um, not only because they um, are directed by a woman, but there has been some um, contestation or debate around the effect of. Um, a woman's gaze as opposed to the male gaze. Um, and, and this is one of these very common topics that if you're um, doing cinema studies, the male gaze comes up quite a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of Dorothy Arzner's films, what is your view on what gaze exists if there is a particular gaze? Because when I watched... Um, when I watched Merrily We Go to Hell, which is her film uh, from 1932, um, to me there was a noticeable difference and I don't know if I was just watching it expecting a difference, but I do feel as if um, being a woman herself, she had some uh, greater insight into women and portrayed them in, in with more complexity um, than the stereotypes that may have been reverted to in the past. Yeah, I think that's really true. The question of a gaze, a male or female gaze, is interesting. You know, you don't want to kind of make it so essentialist to say that a, a male director will always have a male gaze um, dominating their film and a female director will have a female gaze. But in some senses, that is, you know, the way that we do read films. Um, I mean, I think Dorothy Arzner was really interesting in that she did, I think, actively try and destabilise this idea of a male gaze um, and she would often depict certain things, you know, like or women's legs or, or women's feet dancing or, you know, looking at women's bodies, but all it was always through um, this lens of, of a woman, you know, via a woman's consciousness. She did give women, you know, more of a space on screen, more of a chance to um, kind of express themselves and to feel comfortable um, just living in society. Um, I don't think she ever, she never vilified women for seeking happiness and fulfilment through their own um, means. And I think that that was really important and really key to, to her gaze in that she created in her films. And if we're looking at some of the films that will be shown on Wednesday, tomorrow night, um, mm -hmm. there's some interesting ones in terms of um, the women protagonists. Because, uh, for example, in Merrily We Go to Hell, we see um, the main character who is a woman, and you have to remind me of her name now. Sylvia Sydney. That's the actress, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Sylvia plays a woman who's really well off um, and she comes from old money and uh, she meets this drunk journalist and he is, um, a, you know, a typical drunk in that he, he just gets, he drinks to excess and it almost is a little bit like the Roaring Twenties in the way that, um, that these characters are depicted. It seems like there's a lot of parties um, and that women are somewhat, in a very relative sense, more liberated than the Victorian era. 
mm-hmm. um, with with that um, particular scenario, it's it's really talking about a marriage, and you know this woman falls in love with the journalist, but then we see um, this kind of to and fro, like a power shift or game, um, and. And this woman actually suggests that we should be potentially in an open relationship, seeing as her husband, the the drunk journalist who's turned into a playwright, now wants to um, to have an affair with the, the actress of his play. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's kind of a classic, you know, it's a classic pre-code narrative where where um, everyone is sexually liberated and women are able to, to say what they want and have their own space. This was happening a lot sort of in that time. Um, but this is a particularly interesting narrative because you're right, Sylvia Sidney plays this very um, advanced and forward-thinking woman. She says, suggests you know, that they have a modern marriage, um, modern lives, modern marriages. And in a way, at the beginning when she does marry this drunkard, um, it seems as though her life could be ruined, you know, that she is um, going to fall victim to this typical way of, of you know, relations that, that marriage could sometimes inflict on people. But by sort of suggesting that they have an open marriage, it's, it's as though she's moving... Um, into an existence and identity, I think beyond the discourse of the male and beyond the discourse of the patriarchy that defines society of the time. And so it's a really bold move. There are a couple of um, moments in the film, you know, I think there's a moment where uh, the husband, played by Frederick March, comes into Sylvia Sidney's home um, and slips on a handkerchief on the floor. And I, it's just a small moment, but I think it really signifies that, that in Dorothy Arzner's um, vision um, and in her films, men are the ones who are put out and who are made uncomfortable in women's spaces, which is a real interesting switch from the, you know, the way that a lot of films operated at that time. Yeah, that is a great um, moment there. And uh, the the floor, which looks like some kind of marble, is really slippery and he nearly falls over in this mm. parlour room um, and then puts the handkerchief down on the floor so he doesn't fall over. Um, and he wasn't drunk at the time. I uh, no. <laughs> have to qualify that. Um, but also, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, these modern marriages um, and, and affairs and, you know, there's a lot of um, really mature adult uh, issues that come up in this film and uh, mm. and interestingly that also in between the women um, there isn't this I guess uh, animosity between the wife and the actress who is um, having the affair with her husband you know there it's not like a, a typical um, stereotyped scenario where um, you know there would be this huge jealousy in a very um, overt fashion uh, this this other I mean this woman uh, Sylvia Sidney she's taking back control of the situation she's going on a date um, with a very uh, early Cary Grant, yeah. uh, which is really interesting to see in itself. But, you know, this is a, a whole um, new way of looking at relationships that we may not even really um, depict very often in current Hollywood films. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what the um, kind of when the censorship code came in, it kind of put a stopper on a whole lot of explorations of relationships and marriages in this way. Um, but Dorothy Arzner, I think, um, 
was was really advanced and I just want to go back to something you said about you know communities uh, of relationships between women you know the because the wife um, and the woman who was having an affair with the husband you're right they didn't have an animosity towards each other and that was something that I think can really key into what Dorothy Arsden's sympathies were which is in creating these characters of female characters that that really had you know a full range of, of emotions and of humanity and that's something that comes up as well in Christopher Strong which is another film that's screening tomorrow night um, where Catherine Hepburn and the character uh, she has an affair with a married man um, but has this really you know really deep understanding with with his wife that is played out quite interestingly. And Catherine Hepburn in this film, this was her second film, um, mm. and and Dorothy uh, Arzner actually picked Catherine out from the first film she'd done and said, this woman is perfect for that role to play, you know, a very independent woman who is driven by her passion for flying planes. Um, and and that's something that is really interesting to see is um, these non-traditional um roles or careers that that women are undertaking in Arzner films not always but certainly this is one of those those times did this kind of role for Catherine Hepburn play into that development that saw her continue in roles that were very um you know independent and and really um headstrong for want of a better word yeah, I think so. Um, that is how Catherine Hepburn is kind of seen as this independent woman who never wanted to play a role um, in which she was subjugated to, to you know, men's demands. Um, and so I think it's it's a really important role in her career. And you're right, it's the second role she had. The first was in a film called Bill of Divorcement, directed by George Cukor. Um, so this was, was really key. And I think there's, there's some commentary that says, you know... Uh, that her character, Lady Darrington, in this film was, you know, m- maybe symbolised some of some of Dorothy Arzner's own characteristics, and that she was just very independent thinking and and could, you know, engage with with society, but definitely had her own, you know, her own way and her own direction of going. And absolutely, you pick up there on, you know, the the clarity of vision that Dorothy Arzner had. Um, She's often described as one of the first auteurs and in the sense that she always had a great deal of control and oversight across every area of production and post-production. And in particular, given that she was such a talented editor of films, um, you know, she supervised the editing of her films, but she also had, um, you know, close relationships with the writers and she saw that, you know, it was really you know, valuable to have writers on set constantly, you know, being part of the process, not just writing the script, but then I guess being there. Um, and, and she was certainly reliant upon having their vision. But I found it interesting that she worked with a lot of female screenwriters. Um, was there any kind of reason behind this? Um, yeah, one of the most kind of significant writers she worked with was Zoe Atkins and you're right she did keep you know sort of keep them on set so that they could be consultants if there was ever any any change in dialogue or change in you know a scene direction um and I think it you know we were talking about her her gaze being a significantly female gaze and I think working with you know a lot of women was was very key to that because 
that she explored so much the the intricacies of the way that women spoke to each other and the way that women felt about each other um, and, you know, the kind of loyalty of, of communities of women to one another. And I feel like having having women on set with her at all times was, was very important. You know, she already also worked with um, Viola Lawrence, who was a really famous editor at Paramount. And so... So that's quite key to, to her vision, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things, um, you mentioned George Cukor, and I know he was um, one of the openly gay um, directors at the time in Hollywood. And Dorothy Arzner, as part of her story, she was... Um, fairly openly lesbian. Um, she didn't talk a lot about it, but there was, um, you know, it wasn't a secret either. And and she certainly also fashioned her identity or um, the way she appeared in a more masculine um, sense in terms of, you know, the traditions of the time. Uh, was this some um, way to fit in with the system? Um, because it seems, uh, and also an expression of personal identity, like how, what were the challenges involved for a woman Woman, um, working in Hollywood, but then also an openly um, gay or lesbian director. Yeah, it's quite interesting um, that she did indeed dress in this. She, I mean, she wore a lot of tailored suits, and there is some commentary that perhaps she was just simply trying to to maybe perform as a male director in some ways. But I don't know that that was necessarily the case. Um, it, it may have just been a, a personal affectation that she that she did in fact like to dress that way but there is a lot of commentary now and there's a lot of um, record of, of newspapers at the time that, that always commented on her appearance and I think it's complicated because you know we see it now with, with women politicians and all that Pe- people are always, media seem to always be asking them about what they're wearing um, you know and I think that, that um, Dorothy Arden was faced with that challenge at the time and it's it is hard to say whether it was because you know she she was a lesbian or just the fact that she was a woman and and a lot of men sort of felt put out by that yeah and Interestingly, um, from the time, there is a, a quote that I saw um, in a book, uh, an academic book on this, and it discusses her, um, it makes a comparison for, of her to a great political leader. And I'll just read out the quote. It said, to share even one characteristic with the great Napoleon is often the aim of men, but it is the real privilege of one woman in Hollywood, namely Dorothy Arzner only woman director for Paramount. She resembles the great Corsican in her posture, that of standing with her hands clasped behind her back. In all other respects, she's feminine and dainty. It has this, you know, they're just opposing um, masculine aspects of of Dorothy and then also um, the feminine aspects and and there is also discussion about, you know, her soft voice. Um, In in terms of, I guess, the the gendered, um, you know, issues that were around at the time, Dorothy really was a standout because she was hugely successful and very prolific. Just how successful was she in the scheme of history, in terms of Hollywood history? Um, in terms of Hollywood history, she, I mean, when she had the contract at Paramount, she got a contract, I think, in 1927, and she made 10 or maybe 11, 10 or 11 films in six years, um, which was huge for, you know, not only for being a woman director, but just for, for being a director at all on contract at the time. Um 
and following that, she, I mean, she had a, quite a great deal of control over her pitches at Paramount, you're right, and when she left Paramount, she worked for RKO a few a few times and she worked for MGM. She made a film with Joan Crawford at MGM called The Bride Wore Red and I believe that she had a quite a difficult time because she um you know, the the um, studio heads at MGM didn't want her to do a lot of things, so she lost quite a bit of control. Um she made fewer films following um following the you know, her contract at Paramount and in 1943, made her last film. She actually got pneumonia while she was making it and had to kind of leave it and, and someone else finished finished the film and that was when she left Hollywood. So she became less prolific after she had a contract, which I think definitely is because she was a woman and had to sort of fight independently and prove herself at that time. And is it correct that um, she's still uh, made the most number of feature films um, than any other female director in the in the studio system? Yeah, that's right. She made sixteen films in in something in sixteen years, or, or no, in about um, fifteen years, I think. So, so definitely, she she is. Um, and I feel like obviously that's like a, a huge achievement and definitely something that we should remember her for. But she was. I think an extremely skilled filmmaker, um, editor, she had a great eye. She had these wonderful, you know, panning shots and she had a really great, she actually was an inventor of like a prototype of the, the boom mic, you know, um, in, in, uh, the, when she was making the wild party with Clara Bow, she had to kind of experiment with sound recording. So, so in addition to remembering her as, you know, this key queer female director, it's important to, to recognize that she had just a great eye and made some really wonderful films, you know, in the canon of, of Hollywood as a whole. Absolutely. And I mean, I guess that makes the point is that perhaps she should be thought of more often when we're talking about great directors in Hollywood. Yeah, I think so. And she, she I mean, she um, was sort of almost erased from Hollywood history or, or not really thought about it until this rise of feminism and film history feminism in the 1970s and even now you know she's thought of less frequently but that kind of resurgence of of feminist history definitely assisted in bringing her back into um, awareness in film studies and in film history but there was this huge length of time at which she was not recognised which is perhaps why she is thought of much less often. Yeah and I mean she's been thought of um, somewhat more in academia um, and there are some key texts that um, are around, you know, written about her that are, you know, really fascinating. But in terms of the general population's just awareness of Dorothy Arzner, do you think that people um, have been aware of, of her before they've encountered um, the Cinematheque retrospective? Uh, that's possible. I think that maybe a few of her films... Um, do sort of show up here and there uh, on TV, maybe um, late night TV, but they're they're definitely not screened very frequently. Um, some of them were were restored by the UCLA Film and Television Archive a few years ago, which has given sort of more chance for people to 
to discuss them and to be aware of them. Um, and actually, quite a few of her films were, were funded with assistance from, from Jodie Foster. And Jodie Foster, I think, has been referenced in, um, you know, in comparison to Dorothy Arzner as perhaps ha- having sort of parallel experiences in the Hollywood system. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. And in uh, maybe the book that you're referring to, one a book by Judith Main called Directed yes, by Dorothy Arthur. That's the talks, one. Yeah, it talks through that that kind of um, J- Jodie Foster's appearance in some relation to Dorothy Arzner. But the film, I just want to point out the fil- one of the film screening tomorrow night called um, Working Girls is basically impossible to see. So, as I said, some of her films have been lost, her silent films have been lost, and that was, um, you know, a, something that befell quite a few silent films. You know, I think something like 90% of silent films made before a certain year are, are now lost overall. But I think the fact that she was a woman meant that you know, maybe the studio took a little less care with with her silent pictures, at least before she, you know, became a hit making a film with Clara Bow. Um, but the, yeah, some of her films are very difficult to see, um, other than you know, in bootleg form. And so, how have you brought across these films? They, um, some of them have come to us from the UCLA Film and Television Archive, um, some from BFI, and actually the, the print of Christopher Strong that's screening tomorrow night is in Australia's, or Canberra's National Film and Sound Archive, oh, which is really excellent. Yeah, but they are doing the rounds, you know, the, uh, some screened at UCLA last year, I think, and a few film festivals have been, have been having retrospectives of her work. So hopefully they will become you know, it will become easier for more people around the world to see her films in a cinema. And when the the films that we screened last week, the audience reacted so wonderfully to them, laughing and just seeming to, um, you know, in, indulge in this reverie of, of her cinema. And so I think it's really important that we watch films like this with, a, with an audience. Absolutely. Um, so Working Girls is the first uh, movie being screened. Uh, mm-hmm. Then we've got Merrily, We Go to Hell. And then also uh, finally Christopher Strong with Catherine Hepburn. Um, if Eloise, if people want to go along tomorrow, what do they need to do? Uh, so films are screened at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image um, and the Melbourne Cinematheque is a membership-based organisation, so we uh, people can purchase either a mini membership or an annual membership if they if they want to come along um, and and see all the films tomorrow night. And so it's very affordable. Out, yeah, checking out our website or or ACME's website, the Australian Centre of the Moving Image, um, f- for more details. And uh, and on our Facebook page, we've linked to the event, um, the retrospective. So that will also have the link if you want right. more information about those films. Um, thank you so much, Eloise, for joining us and just sharing your insights and passion for Dorothy Arzner and film in general. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to get a chance to, to talk about Dorothy Arzner and let more people know about her. Same. <laughs> get along. Go to the Cinematheque yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks. Great. Thanks so much. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.